I guess it's time. Yeah, I guess I'll start. I'm off by two or three minutes. I can't read it very well up there. Uh, so there are no pressing announcements other than we're meeting in here because there's no heat over there. Pray that they'll get the blower fixed this week. Um, it's divided into two parts, and the blower in here is working. The blower in that wing is not working. So the heat works, but not the blower, and it's cold in there. The other announcement is the Lord's Supper is this coming Sunday followed by fellowship snack. Uh, so we must therefore prepare ourselves accordingly, and today's sermon to that extent is helpful, I pray, to that preparation. Other than that, we have all the announcements, and we have a call to worship. O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with psalm. Bow hearts and heads, a sound of preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 438 in the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, the maroon one, 438.
Amen. Let us pray. We indeed are a grateful God, and we love to tell the story to ourselves and to one another, God, and to read of the truths of your love for us through Christ Jesus our Lord. And we ask, God, that we would continue to learn thus today and many in sundry forms, Lord, and sing praises before you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thankful, God, to being here and to be able to be here, God, to worship your name. We ask, God, for your special presence as you've promised in your word among your saints this morning. As you taught us in the Lord's Prayer, let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. We have the reading of Psalm 33 inside the bulletin. There's an insert, at least part of Psalm 33. We shall read it responsively. That is, I will read the bold face, and you will read the non-bold face. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, for praise from the upright is beautiful. Sing to him a new song, play skillfully with a shout of joy. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouse. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. And so, uh, the last two verses here, we read of the counsel of the Lord standing forever. What counsel? The plans of his heart to all generations. That counsel, as you recall in the poetry of Hebrew, they have parallelisms where you have the same idea repeated in different words or the idea is extended in the next uh, stanza or line. And so these parallel ideas, the counsel and the plans of God, obviously synonymous, those words, of his heart to all generations. What generations? Generations of God's people. That is the plans of his salvation deliverance for us shall not change, for he is the Lord our God. I am that I am, and I do not change. And then the blessing that flows from that, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And we pray that certainly for our nation to go back to God again and the people he has chosen his church for his own inheritance. Let us pray. We come before you, God, with heavy hearts, for we see the sins of our nation, and certainly we see our own sins, God, as we struggle against the temptations within us and the temptations around us, God, the inclinations that we have towards sin and thought, word, and deed, the, uh, the desires that swell up within us at times, Lord, unbidden, and other times because of our own foolishness, and God, the things around us, Lord, in our home, and our neighborhood, and access to where we are in our business, Lord, just down the street, God, it's all around us. And Lord, we are drawn to some of it more than others, God, because of whatever it is in our past or whoever we are, it matters not. It's still sin. Help us, Lord, to overcome that sin, to acknowledge that sin, and to flee from that sin, and to plead the blood of Christ, to find comfort, Lord, in the gospel promise that you will forgive us 
you have forgiven us in Christ Jesus, God, that you will cover our sins if we repent, if we acknowledge our sins, God. May we do thus, Lord. May we be humble. May your spirit work within us, God. And through our sins, as only you can, God, work, work out righteousness and work out the fruit of humility, Lord, so that we can acknowledge our sins and praise you all the more and fight against them, God, with your power and strength. And so, Lord, we are thankful, God, above, for your mercies through Christ Jesus, for the gospel, for the covenant of grace, for the deliverance that we have, for that you are a God whose counsels stand forever, that your promise is generation to generation, Lord. We're thankful for that. These are encouraging and helpful promises to our souls that fight against sin, fight against temptation, Lord. And may we continue to embrace such things and be strengthened today. And not only today, God, but throughout the week, every day of the week, as we appropriate to ourselves the gospel promises of your covenant. We pray for our church, not only Providence Presbyterian Church, but our Presbytery, not only the Presbytery of Dakota's Lord, but our denomination and all churches, God, across this nation, in our city here, Lord, to be faithful to you, Lord, in doctrine and in practice, to stand firm upon your word, to grow and learn therein, and not be satisfied with ignorance and important things that need to learn, God, and to continue on, Lord, in teaching one another your truth, Lord, that the members of the churches of your body, God, would encourage the pastors and support them to the extent that they preach the counsel of God faithfully. To the extent, Lord, that they are deficient, God, may they change, may they repent, Lord, may they be humble and grow and learn, and the people themselves would push them in the direction of reformation. Help God to establish more faithful churches here in Denver and elsewhere across this nation, Lord, so that more and more people can hear your truth. There's so much lies out there and so many confusing uh, denominations, a number of whom are just flat-out cults, God, that just pretend to be Christians, Lord, or have nothing to do with our truths and the tradition, the Catholic faith, Lord, for 2,000 years. And so, God, we pray that you would shut them down and bring confusion to them, Lord, and above all, bring them to repentance, God, that they would see uh, the lies taught in their midst, Lord, and that we can help point that way to the extent that we, Lord, have access to those and those kind of confused uh, fellowships and organizations that pretend to be Christian. We pray, God, for the Christian churches again, that you would be with them, help them grow, and help them be faithful, Lord, help them to be pure and to be bold for your sake, we pray. And we ask, God, that you would be with the government. The government here, our counties, Lord, our cities, and the city of Aurora, God, as we heard this morning, Lord, the concerns of safety and gun violence and the like going on there, God, uh, that you would raise up leaders, Lord, preferably, of course, Christian, but God, even if they aren't, Lord, we know historically that you can in your providence raise up men and leaders, God, that will do the right thing and want law and order to protect their citizens because they care for their fellow men. And so we pray for such leadership in Aurora, if that's what's needed, God, and safety and protection, Lord, for the police to do the right thing to protect the citizens as they are able, God. Be with our Christian brothers and sisters in Aurora and other cities, God, that have these problems across this nation. We think of Chicago and New York and other places, Lord, where crimes have gone up and certain kind of crimes and problems that have accelerated over the last few years. Watch those churches, Lord. Uh, Watch uh, the families, God. Give them wisdom to understand where they are so they can prepare themselves to protect themselves and avoid trouble. And we ask, God, again, that you would move the hearts of the uh, DAs and others, Lord, who has as has been reported, uh, have been soft on crime in many ways and turning the other way, making excuses, Lord, uh, that that would stop. And God, we pray for righteous laws here in the Denver metro area and the state of Colorado, God, and that the unrighteous laws would be overthrown or ignored and undermined in one way or another, Lord. Uh, we think especially such laws that allow murder, the murder of the unborn, and other laws as well, God. And we pray, God, for not only righteous laws, but righteous leaders. Again, Lord, we pray for Christian leaders, because we believe that's the best of the best, but it's still good, Lord, to have unbelievers who do the right thing by the law written upon nature and upon their hearts, God. And we pray for such, Lord. We ask, God, for their protection for the church, in particular, and for families. We lift up our concerns, Lord, for our families and for our friends, Lord, those who are not believers, those who are sometimes, we would say, close to the kingdom of God, and yet so far away that you would soften their hearts, Lord, that you would help us to persevere for them. And it can be very frustrating, especially if we've known them for such a long time, such as family members, Lord. And we ask, Lord, that we would have the truth ready on our lips and a heart of love towards them and patience, God. And sometimes, Lord, the, and always, Lord, certainly the wisdom 
to sometimes be quiet. Or some, after a while, Lord, we know there's very little we can say. And again, that can be very frustrating. God, help us strengthen our faith in you to know that you are in charge as long as they're alive. We can continue to pray for them and ask God that we would have perseverance therein for them. We pray not only for them, God, we pray for our fellow co-workers, uh, fellow neighbors and citizens, God, as we've had an opportunity to talk to them now and then as the topics come up about the eternal things, Lord, that we would have the courage and strength to speak the truth and to leave it at that, Lord. And sometimes we can't say much, but all we need to say is simply the truth of what we believe and what the gospel is and the call of repentance. Help us therein, Lord, to continue to pray for them and to work for uh, their salvation as we are able, God. And we pray for ourselves, Lord, for our growth and sanctification to be more holy and more like you, to be renewed in the image of Christ Jesus day by day, to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, God. Help us to continue to use the means of grace you've given us, in particular the means of grace, the public means of grace that we have here uh, this morning and this coming Sunday as well as what we have throughout the week, God, to read your word, to meditate upon it, to think about what it means for us today, and to pray before you, God, as families and as individuals, Lord, throughout the week as we are able to know that you have used, given this, these instruments of your spirit so that we can be more holy, to be more like you, God, and to stand firm and to follow your ways. Help us to that, and we pray this morning that we would magnify your name throughout this day and throughout this week. In your name alone we pray. Amen. And we now have the tithes and offerings. Let us rise. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. indeed praise you, God, above, and we're thankful for the ability to meet in a warm building, God, and be able to move about as needed, Lord, so that we can have access to your word without distraction. And God, we give these tithes and offerings, Lord, we pray with our entire heart for the work of the kingdom, we pray. Bless it, we ask in your precious Son's name. Amen. As we are standing, let us sing Psalm 110a, 110a.
be seated. We have the reading of the Apostles' Creed, which is the green sheet inside the hymnal. Apostles' Creed on the back side. Let us read it together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. As a reminder, Catholic Church just means universal, does not mean Roman Catholic. Let us turn to our Bibles, to 1 Peter. First Peter 5, almost done. Emphasis on almost, because there's a lot here. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. First Peter 5, 1 through 4. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Let us pray. With these words, God Almighty, we read of the Apostle Peter calling himself a fellow presbyter or elder. And so we see God, the overlap of the offices, and how important it can be, Lord, because he spends some time here exhorting them, encouraging God, the officers of your church, not the members he's talking to the officers of the church, and although certainly applicable to us, God, in various and sundry ways, at the end of the day, Lord, this is for the officers, for the fellow presbyters to stand firm, to do their duty, God, and to do it humbly before you. We pray, God, that to that end, this sermon will help Members of the church understand the duties of the shepherds, and the shepherds, Lord, would be encouraged to continue on in such duties under the Lordship of Christ Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. As we know, many Americans like to talk about democracy. They like to think that there is no leader over them, at least that's the rhetoric used. The ads and the talking points claim our politicians serve the people like a waiter serves the client. But that is certainly not the case, and it's not how God created societies, including the church. They have to lead. Our leaders are called leaders for a reason. To some extent, of course, in a representative democracy or republic, uh, they follow the will of the people, i.e. through voting. But at the end of the day, they're still supposed to do the right thing, even if the people vote the wrong way and want them to do the wrong thing. They have to lead. God has so designed it. God created societies to have leaders and rulers. In the Old Testament, New Testament eras, all nations believed that and practiced that, even calling their kings shepherds. The kings took that mantle, at least the best of them, in the best sense of the word. But they, of course, are supposed to be good leaders and good rulers, having the people's interest at heart, which is part of the picture painted in these verses here uh, to the dispersed leaders of the Mediterranean churches. So the first point, exhorting the leaders or the elders of the church or presbyters. So we have the definition of what that means. You hear the word presbyter. It's virtually a transliteration from the Greek word. The root idea is elder or older person, more precisely. But of course, through common usage, as it is with all languages, it has multiple applications, and over time it meant older person who has experience, and so we made him our leader, (laughs) i.e. an elder. 
Someone with experience, obviously, with old age, which is typical of experience. You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've gone through uh, the difficulties of life and come out by God's grace relatively unscathed and have wisdom to impart and ability to lead God's people. And so they are called that and exercise that not only in the church but through all societies of the world. It's used specifically among organizations such as the Sanhedrin, the General Assembly of the Jewish Church at the time. And it means, and it was used, of course, as an office of authority. We read, for example, in Matthew 16, 21, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how they must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. It's just assumed that the reader of the New Testament epistles and the Gospels, such as Matthew, know the historical context, know that the the Jewish church had priests, Oh, sure, I think almost anyone knows that today in Christian circles. They also had elders or presbyters, uh, older men with experience who have a leadership role in the church. Jesus speaks of them. They're there, just described as assumed in the context of the day and age. The church in the New Testament era does the same thing in the book of Acts, wherein we read of the same word being used, not of the Jewish leadership, but of the church leadership, because it followed the Old Testament church, except in matters of ceremonial law, more or less. They just pop up in Acts, that is, presbyters without explanation, we have in Acts 14.23. So when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they have believed. There it is. Who are these? What? What's going on here? There's no description of what they are, what, what function they have, who are these elders, why do we have them? Because it's assumed that the church, although again, its origin is supernatural, from the Word of God and the Holy Spirit, through the Bible, as the revealed will for God's people to organize themselves in a church, and are in a church even if they aren't organized as such, the body of Christ, still an organization, an institution that has... Leadership. In this case, a leadership that's similar to the leadership outside the holy institution of the church, that is elders. Like we have families, we baptize the children, and so we have elders like other societies that is leaders that are typically almost always older men who have experience. And there they are in Acts, and there they are being used and ordained and set aside. Right, publicly set aside is that picture of laying on the hands for the work of something that they are uniquely given the responsibility for. The use of the word, I've already talked a little bit about that. Sometimes it's used broadly to include in, in the specific context of the church. So not just, yeah, there's a bunch of old people here or presbyters. That's how it's used sometimes in the Bible, older people. But in the more narrow or official formal sense of an office, in that usage, sometimes it's used broadly in the church context to include both pastors and governors, what is commonly referred to as ruling elders. So it's kind of strange in our ears, I suppose, today, but at the time of the assembly, the Westminster Assembly, when they put the confession together, they also put together a book of church order, a form of government in particular, in which they go through and delineate the offices very carefully, and one of the offices they have is governor. And they say, sometimes known as ruling elder. But today, they're known as ruling elders and sometimes known as governors. The language has swapped. It's quite interesting. And I think that's significant for us in this context because it helps clarify the difference, because there is a difference between a ruling elder and a minister, both of whom can be called presbyters in the broadest sense of you're an older gentleman or office of leadership and rule. But there's obviously a difference other times it refers specifically to ruling elders, what used to be called governors, and yet other times it refers only to pastors, probably in the case of Acts 14, because they lay hands on them and they ordain them for the office the elders are. And you're like, well, which elders are you talking about there in Acts 14? Probably pastors, because the first thing you're going to need for a new church are pastors to preach and to go out and establish churches with the apostles. 
In 1 Timothy 5.17, we have an interesting and unique case in which the word is used for both offices explicitly. As opposed to just as in Acts 14, we just have these presbyters. Well, which ones? Pastors, ruling elders, both, maybe? I'm not going to argue it's not both, but it could be. 1 Timothy 5.17, we read, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in word and doctrine. So that seems to talk about both those who labor in word and doctrine and those who rule well as two things that are both called presbyter. And we see we have three offices. You know the one, deacon. The other two, as we are talking about right now, are the ruling elder or governor, as they used to historically be called, and the pastor, minister, sometimes called teaching elder, for example. The pastor ruling elder can both be called, as I just showed, a presbyter, and thus the confusion sometimes. But if we understand that there is a difference, there is no confusion for us. Now what we have here in 1 Peter 5 in his exhortation to the churches of the dispersion, right, chapter 1, here he gets more specific, not just to all the Christians they're dispersed across the Mediterranean, particularly in Turkey and, and Greece and whatnot, is the elders. The elders who are among you, I exhort. So plural. Plurality of elders, which may suggest a presbytery. I've talked a little bit about that in Acts. We have strong evidence. You have clear evidence in some cases, like in First Timothy, we talk laying on the hands of the presbytery of a thing called a regional collection of churches in which are represented by their leadership, both the ruling elder and the teaching elder, or presbyters collectively. So a collection of churches, I think, are presumed, in this case with Peter, to support one another, to have leadership therein. So he's talking to the leaders of the churches, maybe as a presbytery, certainly as individual churches, Maybe both, it doesn't really matter. In one sense, it's wherever an elder is in the Mediterranean, a leadership is, Peter is talking to them and encouraging them and exhorting them in the context of his letter, which specifically uh, focuses on the main theme of suffering. Right? Remember, that's the theme. One of the main themes of Peter is suffering and sustaining and persevering through such suffering. So at any rate, Peter is now exhorting the church leadership of various churches, no matter the church Today, of course, no matter the church, Baptist, Presbyterian, or Anglican, all leaders should follow Peter's advice. Why? Because it is God's advice. For it is God's advice. Remember, of course, it's best to have more than one elder at a church. It avoids the one-man rule uh, problem that you have. Unfortunately, uh, that's a favorite thing uh, in many, um, that is, larger churches in America. uh, But it's better to have two or more. So a pastor, for example, and a ruling elder, which is a minimal, if you could pull it off, in our form of government, Presbyterianism, if it comes down to one guy, the pastor, almost always the pastor, but not, not always, you will ask the presbytery to augment the session so you have another man there, so you're not just having one guy making all the decisions. Fellow elder. Peter calls himself a fellow elder. It's an interesting compound word there that although he is an apostle, clearly, a superior office, clearly, it's a different name altogether. An apostle, to remind you, right, is one who represents who called him, represents him in an official manner such that what he speaks is as though the guy who set him aside as an apostle spoke to you face to face. And so when an apostle speaks, it is Christ speaking. Authoritatively, and of course in, in the case of prophecy, infallibly in that sense. So, that's an apostle. <clears throat> but the apostle here is saying, I'm a fellow elder like you. Other elders out there I'm writing to. I'm a presbyter like you. Now, it's a matter of ability and function, not a matter of a public office per se. He's still an apostle. He's not like, well, I'm no longer an apostle. I'm putting that down. And now I'm just, you know, a ruling elder and you can treat me like a ruling elder and you can't treat me like an apostle. No, I think what he's doing here, and we see this elsewhere in the New Testament, is that he's speaking of the function of having overlapping of function. If you can imagine the offices as concentric circles, the largest circle being the largest amount of responsibility and power 
the apostles. They're doing miracles. Uh, they can do prophecies, right, and things like that. That's the largest office under Christ, of course, who is the head of all of it. Under that is a subsection called presbyters that have the function of ruling, they have the function of teaching, right, and, and the like, what we consider today a typical ordinary church officers. Apostles can do those jobs. They're an apostle and they can do that job. They can also do the job of a deacon, can't they? Oh, in fact, we read that in Acts, don't we? That's the creation of the diaconate in the New Testament church. As you recall, in Acts 6, there's a growing number of widows, and some of the widows aren't being taken care of, and the apostles were helping. And the apostles didn't say, you know what? We're going to be super godly and super holy because we're supposed to help poor people and innocent people uh, in the church, and so we're going to put down the, the teaching of the word, we're going to put down preaching, we're going to put down prayer, and put it aside and help the poor widows. The way people talk sometimes in Christian circles, you think that's more godly and more holy. It is not. The apostle said, we can't do that. We have to preach and we have to pray. We need an office to take care of the people in the church with respect to their bodily concerns. And thus, we have a diaconate. Isn't that interesting? And so the apostles, in other words, were doing the work of a deacon, although they weren't publicly a deacon as such. They were filling a gap, and we do that today. Some churches don't have deacons, they're too small. And so the session fills in the gap, because they can. They have the ability built into that office, right? The deacon is the smallest circle of the offices there. It can be done by the presbyters, which those responsibilities and duties can be done by the apostle, right? Concentric circles. And that presbyter actually is two circles. One is the teaching elder, pastor, he can rule. And the rulers, however, don't teach. So it's apostle, pastor, governor, deacon. It's as simple as that. It's a very simple and clean way of understanding the offices and their relationship and their need. They need each other. I mean, the apostles weren't saying, we're better than you guys. No, but that God has set them aside for a specific task, and that wasn't it. They only did it temporarily until they got deacons. So we're all helping one another. We know how that is in society, at least it should be. And so it is in the society of the church of God. And he continues on here after describing himself as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. A witness of the suffering, I think he means here he was literally there with Jesus and saw him suffer. (laughs) He was one of the original apostles, one of those who... Disciples who saw Jesus and was there and understood what Jesus went through. And so he makes that connection to suffering in a letter about suffering. I too have seen the suffering. And I know what we're in for. I think he's implying without saying it. And you leaders need to know what we're in for and accept that suffering is part of our calling. So it's not made up. Peter isn't just writing about suffering because, you know, you feel sorry for them, but he has witnessed it and seen it. And so he's encouraging the leaders in that sense. I, I am a witness of these suffering and a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. That is, perhaps, when he says a, a partaker of that glory that will be revealed, something he's referring to, on the one hand, the Mount of Transfiguration, right, where Jesus revealed himself a little, a bit, a little more explicitly and clearly to such an extent they couldn't see him. They had to cover him up. It was just so bright, the fullness of who Jesus was. And then pointing to the second coming of Christ that will be revealed. The fullness therein. He saw that as well. He was set aside. He had special access, as it were, in the best sense of the word, of course, by God's grace, not because he was intrinsically more holy, but he was certainly sanctified more than we are in many ways by God's grace. Some people have more sanctification than others, and Peter's one of those, and this is part of what God did. He had him as a witness, he had him as a partaker of the glory that would be revealed, and he's using this to encourage the leaders of the churches of the Mediterranean to persevere and do what they were called to do in their leadership position. And so we have that second point here. So he says all this by way of introduction. And he goes to the main or the bulk of it, shepherding the flock of Jesus Christ, verses 2 through 3. Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. The flock of God, of course, is God's people. It is, we are shepherds over not our flock, 
but God's flock. Now, I know sometimes we say, well, what church do you go to? Well, I go to so-and-so's church. And we don't mean that strictly as though that pastor owns the church and he owns the flocks. It's just a shorthand way of saying it's that church. You don't know the name of the church, but you know the pastor, so I'll give you the pastor's name. We know that, so don't get hung up on that. All I'm highlighting here is the end of the day, the leadership of the church is under Jesus Christ and it's God's people, not their people. And that makes all the difference in the world. Because there are church leaders who treat the flocks of God like they're their own flock, that they can consume at will and use and abuse at will. Now, he has a series of contrasts here. It's quite interesting. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for money, but eagerly. Not as taskmasters, but examples. The first thing I want to point out, of course, I think is obvious to us once I point out the obvious. This is not an exhaustive list of how a pastor should be treated or how a pastor should act and treat the flock of God, is it? You can think of other sins and other problems they ought to avoid. This is apparently something he saw was a common problem. That's what you get in many of the epistles. They're not exhaustive lists of everything that's required of a pastor or what they should avoid, the presbyter should avoid. Uh, in this case, not by compulsion, not for dishonest gain, not being uh, lords or overlords or taskmasters, and other things they should not be. So don't think this is, this is it. And pastors can do any other violations of God's law not listed in this text. And people play that game. Don't let them play it. So the first point here for the shepherd, one who, um, well, the, uh, the word shepherd itself, one who tends the sheep, it's a very broad word. Just tends the sheep. What does that mean? Takes care of them. How? Why? You feed them. You shelter them. You protect them. You guide them. All the ways, the metaphors used here for a shepherd upon the sheep or with the sheep. And of course, that means especially through the Word of God. Although it's not highlighted here, we know that from the rest of the Bible, it's especially through the Word of God that the sheep are tended to by the pastor. And the ruling elders assist therein. Overseers, Shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. So before we get to the three contrasts that talk about the flock of God, what a shepherd is, and here, overseer. And so you see here, uh, as you're reading it, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Who should shepherd the flock? Well, you should shepherd the flock. Well, who's the you? The presbyters, right? Verse 1. He doesn't keep repeating himself all the time. It's the same thought, same idea. But what does he call them here? What's the verb being used? Serving as what? Overseers. Now I have to bring this up because the debates we've had historically, and they're still with us today, unfortunately. The word overseer is bishop. Because <laughs> you have, like in the Anglican Church, the Roman Catholic Church, where they try to argue there's this office of bishop that's different than a presbyter in the sense that the bishop rules, but he doesn't have to preach. They call them dumb bishops. Dumb meaning does not speak which has a double meaning today, of course. And the Reformers, and the Puritans in particular, were dealing with this debate. We don't want dumb shepherds. We don't want dumb bishops. We want preachers. And they would argue, this is one of the texts, that we don't want them dumb. They have to tend and shepherd the flock, feed them the word of God, So that's the word. In other words, bishop is being paralleled in usage with presbyter. That's the point you need to see. So another way of saying is I'm a bishop. <laughs> that sounds really weird, doesn't it? Because the word has been taken from us, hasn't it? It's been taken from us from these other denominations. We have it. It's in our book of order. But I, don't, I, I mean, if you call me bishop, that's fine. But I would kind of look at you funny if you did. <laughs> called the trip of bishop, he'd like, what? <laughs> so, but he is. He's an overseer, and I'm, a, I'm an overseer as well. <clears throat> so, obviously, the idea of overseeing parallels and expands the idea of shepherding and helping the flock of God and what it means to protect them and to be over them. So, here's the contrasts. As overseers, so what you are, be overseers not by compulsion, not for dishonest gain, and not as a taskmaster or an overlord. 
And then he gives the opposite of what you should be. And this matches the pattern, if you think about it, that Paul brings up a number of times in his epistles. That you put off on righteousness and wickedness and put on righteousness, put off the old man and put on the new man. Put off lying, put on what? Truth-telling. And so here you have this put off and put off and put on dynamic used by Peter without those verbs or words, but the same clearly idea used here for the leadership of the church. And so for the first idea here of the contrast, we're still on the second point, that they, not by compulsion, but willingly or eager, excuse me, deliberately, that's the second one, I'm ahead of myself, willingly or deliberately, and they overlap with the next one, eagerly or willingly, overlap with the word willing. So it's best to have a leader, in other words, who wants to lead and doesn't lead because he feels like i got to keep working and get my money. Or I have to be over God's people by compulsion or whatever the reason. It's not very specific what the compulsion is. Uh, maybe he's just reiterating the second idea, dishonest gain. But obviously you want someone who wants to be a leader willingly, not because someone pressured him to be in the ministry. That happens. I don't know how often it happens in the American scene. I suspect not very often because in my experience, too many people want to be pastors when they shouldn't be pastors. So that, that's a problem that ought to be avoided. It's like the difference with the boss who cares about his people and someone who does it because he's forced to. If I have to take care of the people, I guess I must. Well, gee, thanks, boss. You're not going to get much support from him, are you? Not in practice. I think many of you have been there and you've seen that. And the same with the church. The church, although, again, its origin is supernatural, its sustaining and preservation is supernatural as well, it still has humans in it. And, and humans still have so, so, so sociology and psychology that's similar to outside the church. It's the same thing. There are people who lead, and they lead because they feel like they have to be a member, they have to lead the church because their father was a pastor, perhaps, and their father's father's a pastor. I guess I should join the ministry. That's not how you should, why you should join. You should join deliberately and willingly, because you want to. You want to serve and be helpful and lead God's people. That's the idea here. And the second idea, contrast, is not for dishonest gain, but eagerly or willingly. A similar idea, except contrasted with money. Contrasted with the greed of money, church leaders should want to tend the flock because they love them is the implication here, I think, not because they love money. And again, that happens in churches in the American scene. Conservative churches, I know you're thinking, well, lots of conservative churches are small. Well, it's still there, and you still have mega churches, and there's still a form of money. Just because someone isn't making a million dollars doesn't mean they're not greedy. They can still be greedy and still think the way to make money for them is to be a minister, perhaps, because they have got connections. They're able to skip through seminary, make exceptions. I don't know, whatever the reason is. It happens, and he's urging them, don't be a leader of God's people. Don't be an overseer. Don't be a shepherd. And have this as your motivation. Because you want the money. Because you feel compelled to. But rather, deliberately and eagerly. And then, thirdly here, Nar as being lords or overlords, maybe you've used that term, I have, or taskmasters, to give you the idea, over those entrusted to you, but rather examples to the flock. Instead of lording it over God's heritage, the interesting the language there to remind them, again, it's not you, those entrusted to you, it's God's people. Lording or overpower is how it's translated elsewhere. When you lord it over or overpower God's people, are used in a physical sense in the demon possession case in the book of Acts, for example. Isn't that interesting? So it's a forcing idea. When I hear that language, and I heard it a lot growing up, stop lording over me. I think maybe it's an older generational theme, but what I've run across that sometimes it's a good usage. Other times it's kind of like, I don't like you telling me what to do. <laughs> and you're like, okay, but I'm supposed to. Because I'm your father, I'm your boss, you know, I'm your pastor or whatever. As the case stands, in the case at hand, and it's just a way of pushing back. People kind of like use this text. Well, you know, I don't, I don't have to listen to you, right? Because you're lording it over me. No, it's overpowering you. It's going beyond your proper authority. That's the idea. In which case, if the other way, then you would never have leaders in the church, which is kind of the rhetoric used in some of the Anabaptist circles that are still around today. We're all kind of leaders, and no, you're not. 
And the Bible is very clear. There are leaders and there are not leaders or followers. Always under Christ. So to rule, some of the dictionaries, Bible dictionaries, the advanced ones will say, to rule to one's advantage, which is kind of subjective. That's why I think I prefer to rule beyond your authority. To overpower, as the case is in Acts 19, the man to whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, overlorded them, and prevailed against them. That's the word. Going beyond what he should do with his strength and his might. And pastors have a relative amount of strength and might, at least uh, preaching psychologically and influence-wise within their congregations. And uh, to rule to one's own advantage, of course, would be for monetary gain, perhaps. What we mentioned before for, they call it dishonest gain. Uh, status sinking, seeking, ease. Uh, I think it's an easy job to be pastor. I don't want to do a lot of work. I don't know, depending on the, the church size, I suppose. Um, ruling for ruling's sake, like pastors who ordain themselves. I would argue pastors who ordain themselves are overlords who have taken upon themselves beyond what the authority they have. Think about it. And that, unfortunately, uh, leads to a lot of problems, as we see in the American churches. Instead of doing that, be an example, he says. He says, be an example, an example to the flock. Example of what, though, right? He just kind of leaves a hanging example. Be an example. Okay, example of what? Obviously, a godly example. An example for the church of Jesus Christ to follow. Godliness, consistent witness, obedience to God's word, and faithfulness in preaching and sound doctrine, not playing around with novel theories and teachings. The world is watching Christians. The world is also especially watching their leaders. Because we're the public face of the church. And they ought to lead and not, you know, be hypocritical, frankly, in this regard. Third point, receiving a crown, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The chief shepherd reminds us again that the sheep, the church of God, is not ours, the leaderships. But we serve under him and help the body, protect the body, and try to guide the body as best we can. Christ is the Lord of the church. He teaches and guides and protects through the church, through the leadership, and through the word of God especially, so that you can read the word of God and see if the shepherds of the church of God are feeding you truth or lie. That's the implication when we read, when the chief shepherd appears, when he comes to come back as as you recall in the parable, right? The master comes back and says, what have you done with all the things I've given you to take care of? You taking care of my sheep? You fed the sheep? You protected the sheep? That's the implication here when Christ returns, except, of course, he doesn't turn it negative, he turns it positive. Isn't that interesting? He says, when the shepherd appears, the implication of coming back to sheep to see what you've done with the sheep and this is the second coming of Christ, you will receive a crown of glory that does not fade away. So instead of warning them that Christ is coming and God will give you less of a crown or punish you or something for not being a a faithful shepherd, although that's obviously there, doctrinally, it's not here textually, because that's not his point. His point is to be more positive. That there is a crown of glory, unfading inheritance that was promised for all, echoing 1 Peter 1.4, he says at the beginning of the book. A crown that signifies one who shares in his glory, as one commentator uh, points out. In Revelation 4.10 we read, The twenty-four elders fall down before him, who sit on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your hand they exist and were created. What are they doing in that text? What are the elders doing in that text? They have crowns and they are casting them down before the Lord because they know that crown of glory comes from God's grace and his might and power, not from their own righteousness. And so although the language here is of reward, God rewards his servants, and he does indeed reward his servants, brothers and sisters. He rewards you. But it's always what? According to his grace. That's the difference according to his grace, or as they sometimes says, uh, say, grace is rewarding grace. 
Grace crowns grace with more grace. And here he is encouraging them to carry on and not follow the ways of the world and the society around them where people came into leadership positions for money, for glory, by compulsion, to overlord and to be a boss because they like to boss people around, but rather to be humble, rather to be strong in the Lord and to lead a right and lead by example and to do it willingly and deliberately. That's what we want in our leaders. Pray to that end. Not only for our church, but for our Presbyterian, our denomination, other churches around us in our neighborhoods here. And some, the urging of the church leaders to do their duty for the right reasons, especially those who are shepherds of the flock of Jesus Christ. Church members, of course, you are encouraged by implication to help them to that end, to pray for them. Let us pray. We come before you, God, of Savior and Lord above. We thank you, God, for loving us and giving us leadership, Lord. Pastors have leaders as well. We have the session over us and the presbytery as well, God, so that we can help one another to be good shepherds of the flock of God, Lord, that we would serve willingly and eagerly and serve as examples, God. Help us to that end, we pray, and help all of us to pray for our leaders, not only here but elsewhere, God, in the church of Jesus Christ, so that we can be encouraged to carry on to one day receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing hymn 284. Hymn 284. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen.